Good morning, everybody. Got a little break from the rain when you were coming. First service was driving in it, so everyone was trying to avoid, you know, it's like, do I wait in my car for another two minutes and try to time this just right and get it, and then the kids are getting wet, so it was awesome. Okay, so uh, if you are just joining us, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, which is a biography written by one of the first followers of Jesus named Matthew about the life of Jesus. And last week, we wrestled with the question that the people asked as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Matthew records like this, and when he entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And as we worked through that last week, we discovered that Jesus is much more than a prophet. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, this is the return of the God of Israel and the person of the son, Jesus. Jesus is the rightful king and heir to the throne of David. So it's a big deal when he went into the city. So Jesus is much more than a prophet. However, he is also a prophet. And you don't want to lose sight of that fact in light of the much larger truth. So Jesus is much more than a prophet, but he is a prophet still. And he is a prophet in the line of the Old Testament tradition, in the tradition of the prophets. And it can be confusing because oftentimes when we think about Old Testament prophets, we primarily think about people predicting the future or giving prophecies. And although there are prophetic words about the future in the Old Testament, primarily the prophets are giving words of A, exhortation or condemnation or calling the people to repent. But they also did something that we'll call, that's often called prophetic sign acts. And a prophetic sign act is where there is a nonverbal communication. There is something kind of embodied and acted out by the prophet. And in the prophet's actions, you are supposed to hear the message loud and clear. Now, many of these are simple and quite easy to understand, but many of them are exceptionally weird, especially to the modern person. So, for example, in the Old Testament prophetic tradition of the sign act, Isaiah gives us a good example. In Isaiah 20, God has Isaiah the prophet walk around naked, giving prophetic words for like three years. And it's like, well, why is that? And then after, God says why. He says, Isaiah is, in his actions, are demonstrating the fact that judgment will come upon the Egyptians and they will be taken away naked. And what it means is that the Egyptians are going to, going to face punishment and that they're going to go away with nothing. It's like going into nakedness. They'll bring nothing. Another one um, deals with the prophet Hosea. If you're familiar with the prophet Hosea, it's a smaller book in the Old Testament, but Isaiah's actual life is a prophetic sign act. Isaiah marries, I mean, Hosea marries a prostitute. And so it's an image of a faithful man being married to an unfaithful woman. And what you are meant to see in Hosea's faithfulness to the unfaithful bride, you are meant to see that run parallel with God the faithful husband being faithful to his unfaithful bride, his people. So Isaiah's life is a prophetic sign act of faithfulness to unfaithfulness. God is faithful even though his people are not. Here's a couple more, bit weird. Uh, Jeremiah in chapter 13, God tells him to go buy a loincloth, essentially an undergarment. He says, go buy, go buy a brand new loincloth, the undergarment, and then go bury it by the river. And then God says later, go, go get that loincloth that you buried. And it says, then I went to the Euphrates and dug 
And I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, even so I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. So in the same way that the garment was ruined, God is saying that he is going to spoil the pride of Judah. So you get this. It's a prophetic sign act. In the actions of the prophet, a message is delivered. One more. Maybe the most weird one. Ezekiel chapter four. Ezekiel is told, and you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, mill and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them during the the days that you lie on your side, 390 days. So first off, it's already weird. He's told to lay on his side for 390 days. And then he gets directions on how he ought to cook and eat his food. Verse 10, and your food that you eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day, and from day to day you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen. From day to day you shall drink, and you shall eat it as barley cake, baking it in the sight of, on human dung. And the Lord said, thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them out. So Isaiah, I mean, Ezekiel is gonna lay on his side. He's gonna cook. He's gonna cook his food over human dung. And in that, it's supposed to convey this message to Israel that you are gonna be taken away from the land and you yourselves will have to eat unclean bread. Now, there's a little good news with this because um, Ezekiel kind of goes back to God. He's like, Okay, I'm on board with all of this, Lord. But I've never done anything like unclean like this before. So can I just cook over some animal dung instead of the human dung? And God's like, sure thing, buddy. Okay. The, the, the image still gets across, which it does. So he gets a little break, Ezekiel. But so he cooks and eats his food over the animal dung to communicate an unclean food being eaten because Israel will be brought to a place where they themselves will have to eat unclean food prophetic sign act. And in today's passage, in order for us to understand it, we have to understand that Jesus is a prophet. He's more than a prophet, but he's a prophet according to the tradition of the Old Testament. So on that, let's dig in. It's Passion Week um, in the Gospel of Matthew, which means it's the week leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. Last week, Jesus entered into Jerusalem, and today we'll look at Jesus entering into the temple. Verse 12 of the 21st chapter of Matthew. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you, have make, but you make it a den of robbers. I'd be real careful the way I said robbers. I'm gonna share an insecurity with you. At first service, I kept, I couldn't, like the word kept being pronounced wrong. I was saying robbers, like proverbs, but with the, with the R, and it was like, I guess my brain was thinking Psalms and Proverbs instead of den of robbers, so I kept saying, a den of robbers, and I was like, oh man, live streaming the first service, can't make any mistakes, this one I'm okay, all of you just know, man, if you hear me say den of robbers, be gracious, you're in church. Okay, so very famous passage. Even many non-Christians are familiar with this story. It's it's called the cleansing of the temple. Jesus shows up in the first century to the Father's house, the temple, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, and he observes some things and says, this is wrong, and he's so angered by it that he casts, he drives out the money changers, those selling 
the animals and he overturns the tables. Now, a lot has been said about this passage and there's a lot of different reasons given why Jesus is so angry. But what I wanna do is focus specifically on the clues in the text that are given and they're gonna help us understand what is making Jesus so angry. Because if you follow those clues, you're gonna see that oftentimes how this passage is interpreted, it's not, it's not seeing all the details that are actually being listed. So let, let's break these things down piece by piece. Jesus first, he encounters people selling animals, specifically pigeons. So you say, why, why are there people selling animals in the temple? Good question. Remember what time it is from last week. It's Passover time which means roughly, at minimum, 200,000, at most, roughly a couple million, extra people from around the known world are flooding into Jerusalem for Passover. So you have people traveling, you know, some people may be traveling 50 miles, but you have people traveling hundreds of miles, all flooding into the central location, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and specifically the Temple Mount, because that's where Passover is gonna go down, that's where you're gonna make sacrifices to worship the Lord and all of those types of things. Now, let's say you live two to 300 miles outside of Jerusalem, and you're traveling that for Passover, and you wanna bring an animal to sacrifice to the Lord. You know that it's gonna be an extra hassle to bring animals with you, those two or 300 miles. You have to pay for their food, you have to watch over them, and more importantly, if something were to happen to the animal along the way, he were to get hurt, he would be put in the category of a blemished animal. And so when you bring that animal to be sacrificed in the temple, the priest might reject the animal because he's unblemished that you brought two to 300 miles there that day. So at the surface level, the fact that there's people selling animals in the temple for sacrifice, it's actually a needed service. Like your normal person in the first century world sees it as a good service. It's like, yeah, I didn't have to bring, you know, these pigeons all the way from 300 miles away. This is great, I could just buy them here. Now that's not to say that there isn't any shady business practices, that there's not anybody trying to make too much money off of this. That certainly could be taking place, but just at a basic level, this is a needed service. It is a good thing. No one wants to bring the animal 200 miles. No one wants to see them get hurt and then the animal rejected after taking them that whole distance. Okay. Secondly, there's also money changers listed. Well, why are money changers there? People are coming from all around the known world at this time. And wherever people are coming from, there's different currencies in place. And in the first century Jewish world, the currency that was used was the Tyrian currency. And so that was what was accepted at the temple. So you have people traveling from all around, and they come in and they have the wrong currency, one that's not accepted in the temple. Therefore, they set up money changers right where it was most needed in the temple that could exchange whatever currency you had with the currency that the temple used. So again, this is a needed service that most people would have been happy to have in the temple. It's great, money changers, selling animals, it's making life way easier. Okay. So what's, what's going on then? What is, what is really upsetting Jesus? Now, Oftentimes when this is looked at, there's, there's a tension given to a strong possibility, but I, I think it, it's, it's just, it doesn't deal with the, the evidence in the text, that the money changers and the people selling animals, they're so corrupt that they're ripping off the poor. 
They're, they're upcharging people. And the reason why some people think that is that it lists that the, the tables that Jesus overflipped specifically targeted those who sold pigeons. Now, in the order of sacrifices, pigeons were reserved for those who were poor who couldn't afford the greater animals. If you're familiar with the story of Mary and Joseph going to the temple, they sacrificed the two turtle doves, the pigeons. So it was reserved for the poor. So there's a kind of an immediate reason to sort of think that, oh, people are taking advantage of the poor and this is what upsets Jesus. Now again, I'm not saying there was no shady business practices that nobody's getting ripped off, everyone's getting charged the right, the right amount. But again, these are needed services. And there's something else in the text that lets you know that this, this is not the case. It can't just be that there's some, some of the poor are being taken advantage of. Now, the poor being taken advantage of does upset God and would upset Jesus, but there's something here that tells you that can't be the reason. And if you've been going to church a long time, once you see this, you're gonna forever see it. And it's so weird how most of the time it's there, but we don't see it. But who does Jesus drive out of the temple? Who does Jesus drive out? Who does he kick out? Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought. It's not just the money changers or the people selling the animals. The people buying the pigeons are included in the group that Jesus drives out of the temple. So it's like, well, what's going on? What, what, what's, what's going on? He's cleansing the temple and driving out everybody. The clue is in the quotes because when Jesus does this action, this like prophetic sign act action, he goes on to say something and he quotes the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, his Bible. He drives the people out and then he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So he gives his reason. But it's kind of hard to decipher. It's like, well, that doesn't give us any more ideas. Well, it does. Because you, know, you have to know that in Jesus saying it is written, he's letting you know, here's my reason, and it comes from the scriptures. And he quotes two sections of scripture. The first part's from the book of Isaiah. The second part is from the book of Jeremiah. And you also have to understand that when Jesus quotes the scripture and when the Bible quotes scripture, it's not just the few words they're quoting. They're quoting all the, literature, the, the literary context around the quote and sort of the narrative around it. So you have to look. Why is Jesus quoting Isaiah and Jeremiah? Let's look at Jeremiah first, the second half of his quote. Jeremiah 7, 5 through 7. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land I gave of old to your fathers forever. So there's a theme here. God is upset because Israel is not caring for the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, sort of the, the ones who fall between the cracks, the outsider and the outcast. And it goes on. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, that's the temple, which is called by my name and say, we're delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. 
Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So the prophet Jeremiah says, you guys aren't caring about the sojourner, the one on the outside, the fatherless, the widow. Additionally, you are practicing idolatry. On top of that, you are practicing violence. You are murdering. You are stealing. You're committing adultery. You're swelling false falsely you're making offerings to Baal and because of that the temple is not a sacred space anymore you've made it a den of robbers now important note the Hebrew word here for robbers is paritz and paritz means one who does violence a violent one it certainly has resonance and overlap with a word like stealing or robbing, but the, the primary meaning in Hebrew is like a revolutionary or someone who acts violently. And this is important because, again, remember, oftentimes the default understanding of Jesus driving the people out of the temple is that there are people robbing the poor. And again, that may, that may be a part of that, but that's not the first, that's not the main thematic reason. There's violence, murdering, adultery, stealing, all this stuff going on, idolatry, and they're doing it at the expense of the outsider, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And they, they, Jeremiah says, you, you, just because you're standing in the temple, you think you can say, we're delivered, we're saved? That's not the way this is gonna work. So that's the second half of what Jesus quotes. The first half, that my house shall be a house of prayer, is from the book of Isaiah. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please him and hold fast my covenants, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Similar theme, right? There's a concern for the foreigner, the sojourner, the eunuch, the ones who are on the outside who are not typically brought in. God is showing his love and care and concern for them. And then it goes on. And the foreigner who joins himself to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbaths and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The temple, the house, on Mount Zion in Jerusalem is a house of prayer for all people, for the nations. Now this is important for a number of reasons, but the concept is that this, the temple, that the temple in Jerusalem is going to be a place where all the people of the earth, all the nations go up and worship and encounter the God of Israel. Oftentimes, especially if you grew up in the church world, you might hear, God's house shall be a house of prayer. Or sometimes it's a house of prayer for all nations. And the idea that's sometimes communicated by that is that, oh, the, the house of God should be where people pray. And that's certainly true. But there's more to it. And then some people rightfully look at the context and say, oh, it's a, it's a house of prayer for all nations. So we should be praying for all the nations. Like praying for evangelism around the world. That, 
that's a good idea, but the heart of the passage in Isaiah is that the actual house of God in the Old Testament, the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion is the place where all the nations should be able to gather and pray to the God of Israel. The sojourner, the eunuch, the outcast, the fatherless, the widow, all people should be able to go to the temple and pray. And this has to deal with kind of the vocation of Israel. Israel was supposed to be a light so that all peoples, all nations would be able to go and encounter the truth that the God of Israel is not just the God of Israel, but he's the God of all people and all nations. Now, there's more to this that we gotta understand. Okay. This is a replica of the temple in the first century world. Um, This would have been Herod's temple. And what you see in the backdrop is the rest of Jerusalem. So this is like a whole-scaled miniature version, although it's quite large. I've seen it in person. It's it's in Israel, um, of the entire city of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus in the first century world. And the dominant image that you see, the big platform with the building in the center, that's the temple complex. That's it. Now, the thing you need to understand about the temple complex in the first century world is that there is different layers to it but simply stated the two most important things are what we'll call the temple proper. That's everything inside the red box. And everything inside the red box includes, there's different courts, there's the court of the women, court of the Israelites, court of the priest, and they're all inside that red box. And then the tall building in the back, that's the temple. And inside of the temple is the Holy of Holies, the place where God is said to uniquely manifest his glory and presence. So that's, the temple proper. But you also have the rest of the big platform up there, right? All of that extra space is called the court of the Gentiles. So even if you weren't Jewish, you could go to the temple mount and worship the God of Israel there. But at the time of Jesus, you couldn't go inside the red box. You had to stay put in the blue. In fact, there were signs posted at all the entrances that entered you into temple proper in the red box and they are written in Greek and Latin that says if any Gentile crosses this line they will be executed and anyone who brought them to that point is sort of like the blood is on their hands as well so if you are a Gentile if you try to get closer to the presence of God by going into the place that the rest of Israel was allowed to go into you would be executed you would be killed The signs are written in in Latin and Greek um, because they knew that people are coming from all around the world. And so don't expect them just to know Hebrew or Aramaic, but we're gonna kind of speak it in the languages that are most used. So in Latin and in Greek, you cross this line, Gentile, you die. Your place is in the blue area, the court of the Gentiles. Now, remember we said there's roughly 200,000 to 2 million extra people flooding into Jerusalem? The temple mount, the platform that you see, the court of the Gentiles, probably could have 100,000 people on it. So the one place that a Gentile could go to worship and have sacred space with the God of Israel is flooded with what? The money changers, those selling animals, the hustle and the bustle, people, everyone trying to get into the temple proper. There's animals You can imagine the noise, the busyness of it all, 100,000 people. The closest you could get 
to the presence of God, if you were a Gentile in the first century world, is where the red line begins. And make no mistake about it, if you cross it, you die. Which means, what is it like if you're worshiping, you're worshiping Gentile in the first century world at Passover? You have no sacred space. It's filled with noise, disruption, the coins, the changing, the bargaining, the animals, animals relieving themselves. It's your, your church for all you can think of is just completely overwhelmed with business, hustle, and bustle, and there's no place for the Gentiles to encounter the God of Israel. When Jesus shows up, he says, you have made this place a den of parites. It's, it's a place of violence, of, of stealing and robbing. But the original design of my father's house is that would be a house not just for Israel, but a house of prayer for all people, all the nations. Now you have to understand, this corresponds to the heart of God. This isn't just like Jesus shows up and he's like, oh, um, I know Israel, you're God's chosen people, but God also loves Gentiles as well, so we should make some space for them. You have to understand that all throughout the Old Testament, Israel is depicted as a nation, a people that will be a light to the nation so that every people group may come to know that the God of Israel is the one true God of heaven and earth. This is Israel's like vocation, their job, and God's love for the nations is spread out all through the Old Testament. It's, it's everywhere. Once you see it, you notice it all the time. I'll give you just a few examples that illustrate this. So Genesis 22, 18, this is where God chooses Abraham. And he, you know, uh, if you grew up in church, Father Abraham, many sons, many sons, Father Abraham, I am one of them, so are you. Like, if you grew up in children's church, you know this. Um, the song is rightly saying he's called Father Abraham because he's gonna father the entire nation of Israel. All of ethnic Israel will come from Abraham. And God makes promises to Abraham and his children. After God's done listing all these promises, he ends the promises with this promise. He says of eight to Abraham, and in you, your offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. When God forms Israel, he begins it with a promise that says, yes, Israel, you are my chosen people. You are God's chosen people, but I'm choosing you not as an end of itself, but in and through you, Abraham's descendants, I am going to bless all the nations, all the families of the earth. So in the inception of God's chosen people, embedded into their vocation is the idea that God loves all the nations, all the peoples. Isaiah 49.6 says this, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God's salvation wasn't just going to be for Israel, but for the ends of the earth. It was to flow from Israel to the ends of the earth. Another one, Psalm 46.10, be still, and know that I am God. A favorite Bible verse of many people. It's a good one. What's after it? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 67, three through four. 
Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. The nations are not just merely supposed to know the God of Israel is the one true God, but they are to rejoice in him. They are to be glad. They are to know him and experience the joy of knowing the one true God. Last one, Psalm 22, 27, 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Now question, kingship belongs to the Lord. When the rightful king, the son of David, shows up to the holy city and he enters into his father's house, the house that is supposed to be the house that is of prayer for all nations, what does he see? He sees the one place that the outsider, the outcast, the sojourner, the Gentile can come in. And if you're just joining us, Gentile is anyone who's not Jewish. So anyone who isn't of the chosen people, anyone who's on the outside, the sojourner, the foreigner, the outcast, the one who falls between the cracks, they're all having to worship in a place of chaos and there's no sacredness established for their space. So when the son returns to his father's house and sees that, what does he do? Well, you saw it in Matthew 21, but you don't even have to go to Matthew 21. It's written in the Old Testament what he will do. So in the prophet Malachi, chapter three, you see a depiction of what happens. Malachi is writing roughly 400 years before the birth of Jesus, and he speaks of the Lord returning to the temple. He says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now you take all of that that we've just talked about and discussed and reread those short two verses. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. They know how the line ends, for all nations but you make it a den of robbers. So you see why Jesus is so angry. There might have been some bad business practice. There might have been some other stuff going on. At the heart of it, you follow the quotes. You go to Isaiah and Jeremiah. Israel had a vocation, a job. They were to be a light to the nations. And now when the nations gather at the house of the Lord, they are mistreated and not given the proper space to worship. They could have been selling the animals and changing the currency right outside of this space. In fact, there's evidence to say that prior to this time period, it was all done on the Mount of Olives. But it was right in the sacred space of the Gentiles. And Jesus says, this was not the design of this house. 
It was designed for the nations to come and realize the God of Israel is the true God of heaven and earth. And you see Jesus' anger. Now what happens after this? If you thought people were gonna be upset with Jesus after he did that, they're gonna be even more mad after this. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to him, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. Okay, so first, Jesus heals the blind. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about how Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he healed the blind. And we talked about how big of a deal that was because in the Old Testament, you have all types of healings, all types of miracles, all types of supernatural events, but you do not see the blind receiving their sight because receiving of sight of the blind was a miracle specifically reserved for the age to come or the messianic age when the glory of the Lord would fill the earth. So all those miracle stuff you have going on in the Old Testament, you don't see sight to the blind. Jesus, before he enters into Jerusalem, the holy city, he heals the blind. And then after he cleanses the temple, he heals the blind. He's making a direct claim on who he is. He's making it abundantly clear who he is. Now, if you've been tracking with us since the beginning of Matthew, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospel accounts, Up until Jesus enters into Jerusalem, nine times out of 10, when someone says, you're the son of David, you're the Messiah, you're the son of God, he says, hush, shh, keep that to yourself. We refer to that as like the messianic secret, like Jesus says, don't let the word out before the right time. This announcement will be made when we get to Jerusalem. Now, all of a sudden, once he's entered into the temple, once he's entered into Jerusalem, when people praise him as Messiah, son of God, He receives it. He receives it. And so the chief priests and the scribes, they see it and they're upset. Why? Because these miracles demonstrate he's the son of David. He's the Messiah. And if that's the case, he's the one with authority. Currently, the chief priests, the scribes, the Sadducees, they're the religious elite. They're in charge of the temple institution. And if Jesus is going to be the Messiah, they lose their power. They lose their influence. They lose their authority. So Jesus is a direct threat to their control, power, and influence. And if he didn't have the people's ear already, now he's healing the blind, and now everyone's gonna believe this. He is a direct threat to the temple institution's establishment the ruling class of the day. And they're upset about it. And from this point forward, they will do anything and everything to eliminate the threat. So they're upset for a number of reasons. They know it's it's not looking good for them if if Jesus is crowned the son of David. Because remember, uh, they've had some interactions in the previous 21 chapters of this book. Haven't been good, right? They know they're, they're not, they haven't been on team Jesus. And he doesn't, you know, look like he's the type of guy that like, likes people who just quickly jump ship in order to save face. So what's going on? There's children crying out and praising, Hosanna to the son of David. And this makes him even more upset because now the, even the kids are praising this guy. And they go to Jesus, 
They're indignant. Do you hear what they're saying? With the implication, you tell them to be quiet. Don't let the children say this. Now, I don't know the strategy here. This is what I think is happening. I think a normal sort of Jewish rabbi prophet like Jesus um, is going to be humble. And so the chief priests basically go, we got we to make sure these kids aren't saying this in front of everybody. So Jesus will play the humble rabbi and tell the children to be silent. So Jesus, are you listening to this? Tell, tell them to stop. This is inappropriate. Are you a humble prophetic teacher or not? And what does Jesus do? He doesn't, doesn't tell the children to be quiet. Jesus has a history of saying, let the children come to me and receiving them. So what does he say? He says, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So he receives it. Okay, but there's a lot more going on, a whole lot more. Because what does it say before it quotes out of the mouth of infants? He, Jesus says, have you never read? Well, where would you read this? This is a direct quote from the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, specifically the Psalms. And the chief priests and the scribes would know that Psalm. And they would know the line that comes after you have prepared praise. Jesus knows the line that comes after you have prepared praise. And he knows that they know the line that comes after that. But do you know the line that comes after it? Here it is. Jesus quotes Psalms. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To, to what end? To steal the enemy and the avenger. In other words, Jesus says, out of the mouth the praise will come and through the children's praise, God will silence his enemies. You thought these dudes were upset before. Out of the praise of these young children, God will silence his enemies. Get why they're mad? And then after it says, and leaving then, he went out of the city to Bethlehem and lodged there. Enough for the day. You know, upset the whole establishment, the ruling class is upset, the chief priests are upset. I drove out the money changers, the people selling. I drove drove out the people buying the stuff to worship. Then I accepted praise of children and quoted the Psalms and applied it to my life and how God's silencing the establishment through the children. That's enough work for the day. Okay, what happens next? Jesus wakes up the next day. In the morning, as he's returning to the city, Jerusalem, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. It died. Jesus wakes up in the morning. He's hungry. He sees this fig tree. It has some leaves on it. He goes up, no figs, die. Dead tree. And it happens immediately, instantly dead. Now this is complicated, but there's a lot of questions we have to ask. What's up with this fig tree? Okay, first, let's recall what time it is. It's Passover time, which means we're roughly around March or April. So because we know roughly it's March or April, we know some things about fig trees at that time in the Holy Land. The fig tree at this time should be having some green leaves on it. Okay, so the text observes that Jesus sees the green leaves, but then he goes up and he expects to see fruit and there is no fruit and he's upset and he curses it. 
The problem is, is you would see leaves on the fig tree in roughly March or April, but it's not fig season. It, it would be kind of impossible for there to be like big, lush, developed figs for Jesus to eat. In fact, the gospel of Mark actually just says it. He says, there was no fruit because it was not fig season, which makes this seem even more messed up because some of you are like, man, Jesus was cranky, man. He's hungry. He kills the tree. And now you find out it couldn't even bear fruit and Jesus still kills it. What's up with that? Okay, so two possibilities. One, it makes it clear that there's leaves on it. Okay, so it might have been that there was an extra amount of leaves and this one tree was further along and should be developing figs at this point in its growth. That's possible. The other possibility is that uh, even though there's leaves, the fruit shouldn't be fully developed, but you should see early signs of fruit. There should be some evidence that the fruit is still to come. But Jesus looks at it and there's nothing there. Now, whatever kind of view it is, the point is this. There should be some evidence of fruit, either developed or still premature, but there's evidence of fruit that will be produced by this tree. And when Jesus sees that there's no fruit coming, he curses it and it withers away. So in other words, the the tree has leaves, so it has some external signs that, oh, I'm a healthy tree and it's gonna bear fruit, but in reality, the fruit isn't coming, no matter which way you look at it. Now, if you're familiar with the teachings of Jesus, you know um, that he has a special relationship with trees that don't bear fruit. When trees do not bear fruit, again and again, you will see Jesus say what? Chop it down, it's not bearing fruit, useless. There's another layer to this. In the Old Testament, there's all kinds of imagery that surrounds Israel. Israel is often depicted as a vineyard, but it's also depicted as a fig tree because they're abundant in the promised land. So Israel is often represented as a fig tree. Now this is where we have to go back to the beginning to the prophetic sign act. Jesus is going to, without words, participate in some action that has a message beyond itself. Jesus goes to a fig tree. The fig tree should bear fruit. It is not bearing fruit, and Jesus pronounces judgment upon the tree. What just happened the day before? Jesus walks not to a fig tree, but to Israel, and Israel should be bearing fruit. Namely, the nations should be coming to Israel to encounter the God of Israel. But as Jesus goes to Israel, the temple, the fig tree, he sees the tree without fruit and he drives out the people. And so when Jesus pronounces judgment upon the fig tree, he is pronouncing judgment upon Israel for not bearing fruit, namely that they have not brought in the Gentiles to experience the true God of Israel. That's prophetic sign act. And you're gonna see this this theme go on in the next couple chapters with parables that Jesus says. The son comes to the father's house and what does he see? Corruption. There's an original design for the temple and that design is not taking place. The sojourner, the Gentile, the outcast is not being brought in. They're pushed out and their sacred space is turned into a mockery. 
My house shall be a house of prayer for all people, all nations. And it says, when the disciples saw it, that the tree withered, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So the fig tree, the prophetic sign act, it's heavy. Remember, it's all been building to this. Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem, the holy city. He goes in, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're quoting the Psalms over, over him. You are the son of David. He's pronounced king and he goes into the temple and rather than do something that would have been expected, he cleanses it. He drives out everybody, both those who bought and sold. Why? He tells you why. You're turning this place into the place that Jeremiah talked about where you don't care about the sojourner, the outcast, the person on the outside. And didn't you know from the beginning, this temple was for God's chosen people, Israel, but it was so that in and through Israel, God might bless the nations. And then not just Israel would know the one true God, but all people, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, why, why is Jesus so upset with this? Because this is the heart of God on display. When we went through those verses in the Old Testament about the nations rejoicing and being glad, that's the heart of God. The heart of God is that all people would come to know his mercy and that they would rejoice, that they would celebrate the goodness of God. And so what you are taking, what are you seeing taking place in prophetic sign action is Jesus is flipping everything upside down because it's already been flipped upside down. So in a sense, he's flipping it right side up. So Jesus flips over the tables because they shouldn't have been there in the first place. And Jesus is flipping the expectations on because the Gentile was not allowed in. The eunuch was not allowed in. The children were not allowed to come close. And what is Jesus doing? He's inviting the Gentile. He's inviting the eunuch. He's healing the blind and bringing them. Let the children come. Let their praises silence the enemies of God. Everything is being flipped upside down. And in a sense, it's being flipped right side up. And that corresponds to the very heart of God. And there's another flipping of upside down. It's, it's a directional change. So there's an image in the Old Testament. You picture the mountain, the mountain of God, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and the temples on it. And the image in the prophetic books and in, 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 in the books of poetry, it's the image that all the peoples, all the nations would come to the mountain and go up and at the temple mount experience God that they would know him. Now what takes place in the New Testament is the flipping of that. Because that wasn't taking place after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the New Testament writers start speaking like this. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And they say that of the church collective and corporately and also the individual Christian. And so Jesus then doesn't say, make sure everyone gets to the temple mount he says what? He sends his followers with his spirit, temples of the Holy Spirit, to the nations. Rather than going up to a center point, Jesus takes his followers and sends them out. This is what you have to understand, kind of the inner logic of the way Matthew will end his gospel. Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations. 
So it's the same idea, the same heart of God, but there's a direction change. Rather than trying to get everyone to go up and encounter, people are sent out. This is why um, we aspire to be and we say we are and we print it like on all the handouts and it's on everything we do. We say we're gospel-centered, mission-focused. And it's not just a simple like haphazard value that we chose. The gospel is centered. The victory of King Jesus affects everything. But then the other component to that is once you understand the victory of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the cross and resurrection, that immediately will flow to mission. Jesus dies in Jerusalem, outside of the city, on the mountain. And when you see his victory and what he does there, it flows down to mission, which is why the church should have a heart that mirrors the heart of God, namely for the nations, that the sojourner, the outcast, those on the outside would be invited in and they would be reserved a seat at the Father's table. So the gospel fuels mission and the church ought to care about the last, the lost, the least, those on the outside and we do our best to bring them in and you do, you do that because it's center to the heart of God. And so we aspire to be gospel-centered and mission-focused. Now, I wanna pause for a little bit, um, a little mini side trail for a moment. Last week, I, I mentioned, uh, I, I spoke about good news. If you were here for the month of December, you know that every year we have a year-end goal, it's a financial goal, uh, and we met our goal. So it was again, uh, the church, um, is faithful and generous, and I talked about how um, it's an honor and privilege to serve alongside of you. I just wanted to take a moment to kind of extend that and say uh, how proud I am of this church. Now, so many of you serve in different areas, so it's really hard to know like all that's going on, but when we do, when we give to the church, when we give to the Lord, when we do like that year in giving push. It's not just to keep the lights on or to have enough fun so that um, the seats are comfortable and it's a cold morning so the heater's just right. Like that's, we don't do that. We're not just trying to fund things to keep us comfortable, to keep the lights on. We give to mirror the heart of God so that this church can reach the nations, the outcasts, the ones who fall between the cracks, the last, the lost, and the least of them. So I wanna just brief, briefly give you a couple examples that are just incredible, that it's like, there's so much going on that sometimes we're not even aware. Let me give you just one example from the month of December. So some of you participated in what we called the Bridge Christmas Store. Okay, um, that was put on by our missions department run by Sam and Tammy. And we have enough sort of like work, groundwork, policies, procedures in place for accountability purposes, all kinds of things in place so that we could identify families in need in our community. And it, it, as you know, there was more need than ever this year. There was a weird moment where Pastor Greg mentioned um, how it was encouraging that we, um, we had more people apply for assistance than the previous years. And everyone's like, yeah, we were able to do it. But at the same time, it was sad because there was more people than any of the previous years applying for help with this. So there's more, all these people in need. So many people hurting among us and in the community. And so um, out of that, 100 families were helped. And what that translated to was there was over 300 
children who got Christmas presents that would not have got Christmas presents. That's roughly 100 families represented and 300 kids feeling the love of God. On top of that, because of the groundwork and the the things we had in place, we were able to identify people who were in need of food assistance. So we gave a little over 100 families $200 gift cards for groceries for Christmas in the month of December. That's 100 people in our community, 100 families being shown the love of Christ. And they know that there's a local church of people who give generously and sacrificially and out of that, they are caring for people that they don't know. And we don't do these things just to do nice things. That is, it's not like, oh, we did nice things and you pat yourself on the back. We do these things so that the nations may know the God of Israel, the one God of heaven and earth loves them. We go to the last, the lost, the least, the outcast, those who are forgotten, to share the heart and love of God. It's not just to do nice things. I won't get too much into it, but um, many of you know that for, that's like a local activity. It, globally, we have focused countries and ministry partners, and there's work going on all year long with that. So in Haiti, we have an orphanage for 25 children. And we are the primary funders of that orphanage, which means those 25 children, they receive food, shelter, housing, education because of the generosity of this church. And we're the primary funders. And what I mean by primary is like we're pretty much covering the whole orphanage. So in addition to the food, the clothing, the education, what this does is it allows orphans, people who have lost their mother and father, to know also that there is a father in heaven who loves them and has not forgotten them. That's 25 kids. And I've said it before, but like at the end of the day, if that's all this church were to do, is tell these babies without moms or dad that there's a God in heaven who loves them and has not forgotten them, if that's all we do, that's good enough for me, man. What a tremendous honor and privilege. In Africa, in Nigeria, in Tanzania, there's massive work being done with hospitals and educational facilities, the Dominican Republic, anti-human trafficking efforts, and I can go on. But there's a reason for that. It's not just to do nice things. It's because God's heart has always been for the nations, all people. The heart of God is that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would come to know him because he loves them. And when you understand the nature of the gospel message, it will immediately lead to fueling the mission. And so what I want us to wrestle with before we transition into communion is, is like, we wanna be a church that mirrors the heart of God. And in order to be a church that mirrors the heart of God, you have to have all the individuals <laughs> mirror the heart of God. So it's like, take time and, and reflect because it's very easy to get distracted and get focused on this or that, but like what is, what is central to the heart of God? What is so central that when Jesus shows up to the temple, he's driving people out is that the lost would come to know the one true God and that the mission now is not to bring everyone to a specific mountaintop, but that God would bring his 
presence to all people and to the nations in and through his people because God's plan always was to use his people to save the lost. That's the heart of God. And it's just easy to lose sight of, right? You got, you got a lot of di- issues and things going on. It's really easy, I know it. It's like, no, you wake up, Lord, give me a heart like yours. Because they're inf- they're ev- people are hurting everywhere. And you've got good news. You've got really, really good news. Now, before we transition to communion, one last theological point. Because it's really easy to look at this passage and see the cursing of the fig tree and, you know, Jesus upset. And it's really easy to look like Israel completely failed in their mission to be a light to the nations. And because Israel failed, God judged them. He curses the fig tree. And in one sense, that's true. I mean, Jesus cursed the fig tree and Israel was failing in their mission to bear fruit, to be the light to the nations. But in another sense, Israel did not fail. The Psalms say, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Israel doesn't fail at her mission, at her vocation, at her task to be a light to the nations. Well, how does that work? Jesus goes in and he says, you're not bearing fruit. Remember who Jesus is. Jesus is born of Mary. He's the son of David of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the faithful Israelite. And Jesus, the one and true faithful Israelite, will do in himself as an individual what the entire nation was designed to do. So with the death of Jesus on Calvary, you see the death of the Son of God. And in the resurrection, you see the resurrection of the Son of God, but you're seeing the death and resurrection of the obedient, faithful Israelite. And in and through his obedience to the Father, what has occurred? You're here today. Because for majority of us, probably 98% of us, we're Gentiles. But God has made one family of Jew and Gentile and both Jew and Gentile have been purchased with the one blood of the one son of God. Israel did not fail because the lion of the tribe of Judah was victorious, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in that, you see Israel accomplish its mission by the faithful and true Israelite. And we look to him and his victory to fuel our mission. Have your heart mirror the heart of God. Let's stand as we take communion.